Welcome to the Barbells and Bone Broth Podcast. I'm your co-host, Kelsey Albers, and my co-host is Heather Hammond. Heather and I are both nutritional therapy practitioners and serial fitness enthusiasts. We are constantly diving into the new science and lost art of wellness. On this podcast, Heather and I will be digging deeper into relevant wellness topics. Each podcast season, we'll start with a big idea to unpack, and in the following episodes, we'll bring on expert guests, provide our own insight, and take questions from you, the listener, to drill down to the nitty gritty. We'll get real, we'll get uncomfortable, we'll have fun and learn something new along the way. As a reminder, nothing shared on the Barbells and Bone Broth podcast should be taken as professional medical advice. If you hear something that interests you, please work with your trusted healthcare practitioner before making any changes. And now, on with the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Barbells and Bone Broth Podcast. I'm Kelsey, and here's Heather. Hey. Hey, Kelsey. How's it going? <laughs> Great. We are. I'm going to interject. We're recording at night. Totally different yeah. vibe. A little totally punchy, vibe. so this should be interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as one of us doesn't fall asleep, I am going to consider that a win. A major win. Yeah. Well, it gets dark at four o'clock now, so anything's possible. I hate it so much. I like cooler weather, but I'm like, can it just always be like bright until 730? Like, why does it have to be dark early or stay bright too late? Like if my chickens are up later than I am, it is what it is like way too late into the night. Well, here's a tangent, but I did see something and I don't know if it's true because I don't believe anything on social media, but I saw some interesting information that something, if we gave up daylight savings time, we could have a much more normal, we could have a longer day of sunlight the entire year. I don't Mm. know if that's possible. That's another Mm. rabbit hole for another episode, but yeah, I don't like, once I start talking about daylight savings time and all that, I start talking myself into a circle and I'm like, I don't, I don't know how it works, whatever. Sort of like time zones. Don't really understand. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> just magic. <laughs> it just somebody just says it. So I said, okay. Yes. Okay. So what are we talking about today? So we're on season three, which is diet culture. Dun dun dun. I know we pretty much have to say that every time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we okay. So our topic today is history of diet culture. Um because I was thinking about diet culture and I was like, when did this start? Right? Like, who did this start with? I'm like, and it didn't start with our generation and it didn't start with our mothers and it didn't start with our grandmothers. And then I started going like back, like farther and farther. And I was like, when did this madness start? So I thought it would be good to take a step back and go through some of the um, historical context of diets and then diet culture. Sounds good because it really is a a question that I don't know that most people know any answer. There might not be a definitive answer because when did it start? We Mm -hmm. always want to blame just something right now, but Mm -hmm. this is so ingrained and deep. This must go back centuries, if not Mm -hmm. more. And I have a feeling Mm -hmm. that you researched a lot. So you might might have some of the answers. So before I get started, I want to give a shout out to a two-part article on 
um, a website called skyterrawellness.com. Um, it's the history of dieting. There's a one part and a two part. I'm going to, I will link it in our show notes. It is long, but it is so interesting, especially if you are somebody who likes history. So, um, and we're not going to go through everything that they reference, but it was, I don't think really we have the time. Start. I imagine <laughs> we don't, I could read this word for word and we would probably be like two hours. So, um, very interesting. Um, and I have it up so I can reference it if I need to, but, um, so it's good. So I recommend people thing? check it out. Okay. Where, where did it start? I mean, does the okay. article start that way? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So it's, it's chronological. So, um, so first off dieting didn't start until food scarcity wasn't an issue anymore, right? Like when food is scarce, um, dieting becomes less, like you don't care as much. And we're going to actually come back to that theme, um, in our modern history about a couple of times when food was scarce and how that impacted diet culture. And it might like flip around the way that you think it should impact. But anyway, we'll get to that. It's really interesting. So, um, like paleolithic era, pre-agricultural revolution diet culture just wasn't it, nobody was on a diet because food was scarce. You hunted, gathered, foraged when, and ate when you could. So, um, you were looking for food. It wasn't mm-hmm. anything that was just falling from the sky for you. So, yeah. so the first time that we see dieting to achieve a certain body type. So first, like a little bit of a step back, like the, uh, Greeks, um, came up with the word diet, but it wasn't to necessarily, um, describe something you would do to lose weight. It was more about, describing food, a lifestyle, those sort of things. So the actual, you mean the way that it's actually properly, right. Talk about diet and nutrition. It is not going on a diet. It's just what you happen to eat as your diet. I have, I have a diet. I'm not on a diet. There you go. Okay. Uh, so yeah. So the first hints of dieting to achieve a certain body type or a certain look actually show up um, sometime probably around 500 AD. Um, and it was actually early Christians that it showed up in. Um, they believed that, um, of the physical body was the enemy of the soul. So it was believed that gluttony and larger bodies were evidence of sin, because if you were, had a larger body, you were sinful because you were overeating because you were indulging. So that would go back to it being one of the deadly sins, right? Gluttony. Yeah. And okay. this first time that we see dieting to achieve a body type already has a moral component to it, which we know that dieting today still has a moral component to it. So it's I mean, interesting how that through line is still there. I don't want to wrap up the podcast, but I think that just might be it. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, did oh, you but hear that's my so mic interesting because <laughs> Because that's so, that's really incredibly interesting because I, although as humans, we can find a moral issue in anything, Mm -hmm. but size and food is so moral that, that I just think it's astounding that we can trace its roots back to something that was literally about morality. So, um, right. So they believed that there it's believed that early saints or some saints starved themselves to be more holy. So, um, I know in a lot of religions, fasting is an important component to it, but I think a lot of times those fastings have more of a, um, about doing the fast and giving up rather than to become thinner. I wonder Um, if it's a little bit of a remnant 
mm-hmm. from those times in the sense sure. that maybe they weren't fasting for the reasons that people are now. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's just interesting. That's, that's a rhetorical thing, but right. So even the Pope in 600 AD, Pope Gregory defined gluttony, not just as eating too much, but also as eating wild, wildly or eagerly or eating between meals. Um, he said that picky eaters were also guilty of the deadly sin. So, um, yeah. So the Pope so, said it. There's just so much wrapped up in food. Yeah. Wow. And on, and so then the other thing I thought that was interesting about this time period. So St. Catherine of Siena, um, her parents wanted her to marry her sister's widower. Um, and she found that she could control or she could refuse food to stop that marriage. So she like this early, um, use of controlling or not eating and controlling food to control the situation. So again, like, Hey, here's the theme. Um, sadly though, she died of starvation, uh, in 1380 AD. So that did not go well for her. It did not work for her. Is it her <laughs> tangent? Is it her hand that they have there in the, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I went to mm-hmm. Siena and they have okay. a shrine oh. to her in Got the, it. um, in the Duomo. I was like mm-hmm. Basilica in the Duomo and it's a basically dried up mummified body part. Is oh. it really hers? I'm not sure, but fun yeah. facts. Anyone listening, Google that. I'm curious that is right in. Fun. That is a fact. I'm not sure how fun that is, but yeah, no, they we love a relic. We love a relic. I don't know. <laughs> so we move on from um, Christianity, because I don't want to just like come down on the Christians because, Oh, and I don't um, even mean we, it that way. It's just history. Yeah. It's just no, history. for sure. For <laughs> sure. But so then the Renaissance period began right, mm-hmm. um, around 1500 uh, and everything became a little bit more secular, secular, um, but it was still considered immoral to be overweight. But that was because during the Renaissance period, there were still lots of people that didn't have food, right? Like you saw, you were, had a soft focus on the haves and the have nots. Um, so the idea that it being overweight and overindulging um, was immoral because some people, most people didn't have enough to eat. Well, that would make sense because if your neighbor is starving and they see someone who's a little more heavy set, they could be thinking you're still, you're taking from me. I, right. I'm not saying that's a correct thing but sure right yeah a lot of things play into it but it's interesting but when renaissance women wanted to look thin they didn't diet but they got their corsets out and Mm. for those people who don't know what corsets are um they are these contraptions right that you put around your waist and you can cinch it up super tight with string um and it gives you that hourglass figure Mm -hmm. that we all just so desperately feel like we want um So, but they would bind all the way up over their breasts and then down through their waist, but they would, they could die from it. Mm -hmm. It was called straight lacing. So their corsets were cut in their skin and caused sores that would get infected. I can't even imagine. Right. So, I mean, that sounds pretty terrible, but did you know like corsets and waist trainers are back? Oh Yeah. I mean, people wear Kardashian, absolutely. Right, right. I was just, the second you said corsets, I was going to be like, cue Kim Kardashian right now. Right. 
Right. Mm -hmm. So I remember talking about this before, back when I was, uh, had the old version of this podcast. Um, and I really dug into why waist trainers aren't a great idea. So just as like my little aside and a rant on this, uh, waist trainers are not a good idea. Um, it messes with your diaphragmatic breathing. Um, it puts you into one posture and it doesn't allow your body to move freely. Um, and it's just, you know, it's they're uncomfortable. Like why? So, uh, not a great idea, but the modern version of this too, aren't just waist trainers, right? Like we have like Spanx, we have control tops, we have all of these things. So throughout history, we have found ways to shift our body type with clothes. Yeah. It's still there. Yeah. Even if we're not going to that much of an extreme, mm -hmm. people are still putting on their Spanx. or their double Spanx before their dress. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. Yep. Fun. And Spanx are uncomfortable. I just like, I don't like, I like Spanx are elastic and they're mm -hmm. uncomfortable enough for me. And I don't know how I would feel about like wearing a corset that's cinched with like metal and lace or metal and string. I can't even imagine because I do find Spanx to be not the most comfortable thing. It's not like it's giving mm -hmm. your body a hug. Let's be honest. No. It's yeah. constricting. If you sit down, it feels one way. If you stand up, you know, it cuts into you, but I, I guess this is just what they did. It doesn't mean they mm. liked it, but I always think of that scene and in, in Titanic. Do you remember when her mother was angry at her at Kate Winslet and she was mm -hmm. lacing her corset? With, oh, with yeah, a real aggressively. Right, right. You know, yeah. but we see it all the time. And, and I'll tell you, the Kardashians, I mean, they wear those waist trainers. They wear yeah. essentially corsets and they sell them. Mm -hmm. But Please here's my question. Them, Do they even wear them or are they just making money <laughs> because they've had so much plastic right. surgery? Right. I'm pretty sure they're yeah. not listening. But Kim, if you are, call me. Yeah, right. we would like inquiring minds want to know, and we are not body shaming, but oh, she's um, beautiful. At the end, yeah, right, absolutely. But I don't. I just think that they're not like there are so many other ways that we can approach a slimmer waist if that's what somebody wants than ratcheting on a corset. So uh, I don't recommend them. But anyway, so then in 1558, the first diet book came out. And okay. it is still in print. All it right. is called The Art of Living Long. Hmm. Okay. Here, okay. So Luigi Carnaro, Carnaro, Carnaro. I'm I don't speak Italian. Um, like Carnaro. So so <laughs> he was tired of being overweight and he wrote a book. So here's what he did. He limited himself to 12 ounces of food a day and 14 ounces of wine. Not bad. I will note that and I will put that in the show notes. <laughs> so, just well, and here's the thing. He lived to be almost a hundred years old. You know, I don't know. <laughs> that's a little, I don't know. So something worked I mean, him. he could have been onto something, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would be pretty miserable on 12 ounces of food a day, but I suppose the 14 ounces of wine would have numbed that. Yeah, it would probably help a little bit. Although when I drink wine, I just want to eat more. So that might be a problem. Well, that, that's the other half of it. That's true. Um, yeah, almost a hundred, but he lived almost a hundred. Right. And towards the end of his life, he only ate egg yolks. 
That was it. Well, so um, he must have like be one of those people that just doesn't really care about food taste or texture because I just I'm not there with you, Luigi. But I'm glad you live to be almost a hundred. Hey, fantastic. And that's why his book is still in print. Right. But <laughs> it's interesting if he was overweight, because that would suggest that he possibly was having a nice diet full of food mm-hmm. to go to such little. Mm-hmm. But I guess it says he, um, he wasn't able to have sex. So that might have been part of it. Yes. His motivation. Yes. Well, that's, that will impact you, right? He said, so this was a quote from the uh, History of Dieting article. It said, uh, tired of being overweight, feeling out of control, and unable to have sex. He limited himself to 12 ounces of food a day and 14 ounces of wine. So um, I suppose that's if anything's going to be a motivator. Food. Yeah. No, very little. I want to know. I guess I should get the book. Was it like vegetables, like meat and potatoes? Like well, I just. And I'm like, are you eating 12 ounces of butter? Right. <laughs> that would be some calories. I would throw up right yeah uh, that's a lot of fat that's really interesting so yeah and then between that and more of modern diet um we see like first calorie counter first low carb diet you know all that sort of stuff so they're in there and and a lot of this has been dated so it was, it was pretty interesting but before modern dieting which is like the mid 1800s um there were a lot of people that had already started figuring out different diets. You know, it's just, it's so interesting to me and I don't know that we have an answer, but how was it? it was it just word of mouth that it was better to be smaller at this point? Like what was driving these people hundreds so of years ago? This was all, the church? It all, well, all goes back to morality, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, there is this again morality is linked with or so so being immoral is linked with overindulging in food overweightness is linked with so in other words through through the centuries it's literally Mm -hmm. been smaller is good larger Mm -hmm. is bad Mm -hmm. okay yep it's just fascinating Um, like because looking back keep going well, I say looking back at some of this article, um, so people who were in positions of power and were overweight when other people were starving um, were made fun of, basically. Like, mm-hmm. so I'll read you this quote: um, In the 1660 1660 famine, uh, when the 1660 famine swept Europe, people ate hunger suppressing foods like potatoes. Starving cartoonists made fun of the very fat George the Fourth calling him whales, whales as in the animal whales, not whales as in the place. Can you say that again? Because it cut out. Okay. So in in 1660, famine swept Europe and people ate hunger suppressing foods like potato, starving potatoes, starving cartoonists made fun of very fat George IV, calling him the Prince of Wales. Whales as in uh-huh, uh-huh. animals, not Double so, entendre there. Okay. Right. Right. So again, like, again, it's not that because people like there weren't movies. We're going to see the prevalence of Hollywood and the prevalence of, of film stars come in later, but now, right now it's this morality thing. Like, cause moral, that's what I was like, getting at. 
there was no internet, there was no movies, there was not even any silent films, there were no mm-hmm. magazines. This mm-hmm. was literally just something you knew. Mm-hmm. It just was. Mm-hmm. And that's deep seated when it's something that a culture just or a world just knows. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, it's it is interesting how it is ingrained since modern quote unquote modern times. So AD basically is when um, about 500 AD. So um, yeah, it is very interesting. So let's move into what is called modern dieting. So this starts mid 1800s. Um, So the idea, so this started to happen both for both masculine and feminine beauty, right? So at this point, we have magazines. At this point, we have books. We have all of these prints where we can see images of what we maybe should look like, right? Um, but it was thin and romantic. So clothes became form-fitting for both sexes. Um, women's dresses required tiny lace waists, um, and men wore tight um, pants with tight-fitting jackets. Um, so form-fitting clothes and a slim fat slim figure, um, these became the ideal. Um, and again, we pull in, it's fair game to be ridiculed and called immoral for not fitting into these fashions. So one book from 1881 even advised governments to arrest, arrest and imprison fat people. And, (laughs) and I just want to say too, so I'm reading the word fat a lot. That's because these are exact quotes from the time. I think it's also remembering that fat is simply a descriptor. It's not because even the word fat has such a negative connotation, but we're Mm -hmm. literally just talking about fat upon a body. Mm -hmm. You know, that's it. That's it. Right. So the most, one of the most dramatic shifts um, in modern dieting came after world war two. So world war two, or I'm sorry, after world war one. So we have this new like livelihood, right? Like a lot of people call it a sexual revolution, right? Like uh, people were going to speakeasies, ignoring prohibition. There were no new clothes, this um, new wave of feminism. Um, But some of the new clothes um, became, or the new clothes became for a different figure type. So if we look at a flapper dress, um, the flapper dress is really only flattering on thin or slim athletic bodies, right? So, um, and interestingly enough, uh, athletic bodies were called boyish at the time. So there's a nice little misogynistic uh, nickname for (laughs) you. So um, yeah, So, so that happened. And all of a sudden women were trying to diet themselves down. Um, the prevalence of a bathroom scale became popular, uh, vitamins, fat massages, thyroid extracts, sweat baths, chewing gums, pills, all that sort of stuff. And we also had more magazines that were reaching real mass mm-hmm. audiences. Um, at, so they had ads for weight loss. Um, so it was a big time for women wanting to change their body. And the frustrating thing looking at this, it's like, okay, so you're wanting to change your body to a type that it is not probably ever going to get to without causing serious harm. Well, and what that tells me with the invent of magazines is that Mm -hmm. somebody somewhere figured out they could make a lot of money. Oh yeah. 
Well, a lot, you know, the products weren't, you know, we, we have a food and drug administration today. So the food and drug administration was not a thing at this point. Um, And I think we can argue that the FDA may or may not protect, always protect consumer interests, but it was non-existent at this time. There were no safe, no safety nets. Right. So there was like some examples of the pills and gums and medicines were dangerous and contained iodine, arsenic, and other poisonous items. Weren't these also, wasn't this the time where people were drinking Coca-Cola that actually had cocaine? Oh, I'm when sure. When was that? Yeah. You know, um, and, and I, I don't know if that's even true, but what so, a time to be alive. <laughs> um, co- so I was reading an article about that not that long ago and like historians are like, yeah, it's true. Like people with like yeah. um, some knowledge of the time period, but Coca-Cola still has not admitted it. Like they are like, nope, we're good. My assumption is it was also trace. It was not anything significant. Right. But man, what a, what a, what an era. Yeah. (laughs) Drink your arsenic and your cocaine and go to the speakeasy. Well, and it was also wartime. So, Hey, why not? So then the other problem that came into one of the really harmful practices that came out of this time. um, So post-World War one soldiers came back with rolled cigarettes. Mm. Um, previously, if you wanted to have a cigarette, you'd have to roll it itself. So cigarette companies started, manufacturers started popping up, um, and cigarette companies marketed themselves as a weight loss approach. Well, and we all know how that story ends previously to the war, it was looked down upon and Mm -hmm. it was something I believe that they considered like infidels did. Right. And then it all changed. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, the other huge factor and huge impact of this time period. And probably one of the biggest is the Hollywood movie Mm -hmm. industry spun up. Um, so it was silent films, right? So they first started making them around 1895. Um, but they really started reaching all of America around this time, post-World War one and showing them how beautiful and thin a glamorous person could be. Um, so we had a lot of the starlets of the day that were underweight or just very small, for, for a person in general. Well, I don't think we've come to, I mean, have you ever seen a celebrity in real life? Because any celeb, nearly, nearly of the few I have seen, they are miniature people. Small. So I have, I I mean, you live near New York city, right? So like, we don't really see celebrities out in like rural (laughs) Illinois, but um, probably a ridiculous thing to say, like, you know, when you see a celebrity (laughs) at Starbucks or walking down the street. Yeah. Okay. Um, I saw the mayor of a small town one day and I was like, that's the mayor. Look, I'm also saying that as if I see all these celebrities, a handful, but the, yeah. the ones I have seen are tiny people. Right. Well, I, we went to Harry Potter world a long time ago and, um, they had Emma, one of Emma Watson's dresses and it was, and I realized she was a child or well, maybe not. This was one of the, the later movies, but she, she was young, young. right? But still, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know if my thigh would fit into that dress. Like it was small, right? Mm-hmm. So, so people start that now we have this influence of um, starlets and Hollywood, right? And and movies at this time were, you know, we don't have the as much skin being shown or you know over sexualization, but it doesn't take much for people to start comparing to see like, hey, this is. Um, who I should look like. And maybe that's that's human nature. Absolutely. Right. So then came this time during this time, um, it seemed to become perfectly acceptable to say 
all sorts of mean things about overweight people. So I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from doctors at the time. Um, and before I read these, I'm going, again, I'm, I'm going to give a trigger warning slash advanced, like this are, these are literal quotes from people who lived during the time, right? So these are, these quotes are both misogynistic and homophobic. So just a trigger warning. If you want to skip ahead a minute or two, um, go for it. But I think it's important for context. So, um, Dr. Leonard Williams, the author of a 1926 diet book said being fat was all about self-indulgence, greed, and gourmandizing. I don't even know what that last word is. Apparently he makes up words too. Um, Dr. Williams accused American women of overfeeding their husband to make docile, docile. William Fitch, author of dietotherapy wrote that fat people turn their stomachs into an overfed boiler that burns out. And Amelia Somerville, author of the 1960 or 1916 book called Why Be Fat wrote, I would rather die um, than be fat. So those are, so these are really mean things that people said. So then doctors, right? So this is, <laughs> this is where it kind of gets to be really uh, uncomfortable. So the pushback from the doctors to diet culture. So you think, okay, doctors are going to stand up for people and say, Hey, it's okay that these people are this weight and look this way. So one doctor put it, it is preposterous. Is there no humbug to raw women should not follow beauty ideals to endanger motherhood. Okay. So motherhood, right. That's right. the um, that's the one. And then Dr. Morris, Morris Fishbein writing in 1929 was even more forceful about dangerous dieting. Although sadly, um, he was also both sexist and homophobic in his protests. Mal, he said, quoting malnourished women are deeply unattractive. He wrote, and they threaten male and female norms, encouraging the rise of lesbianism. Female fat is necessary for, for societal survival. This nonsense is the result of feminism. <laughs> Writing in the same year, Dr. Harlow Brooks agreed. A woman who is naturally sweet-tempered, good-natured, and competent, he wrote, transforms into a different person on a diet. She becomes petulant, unreasonable, and hard to get along with, and might even end up a lesbian. Yeah, so <laughs> it is... I, I don't what? even... Right? Like what uncomfortable statements. And I just want to time travel and punch these people in the face. Well, there's just so many layers of idiocy and awfulness to unpack there that we're not even going to do that. Right. But this is just the nonsense that this stuff is wrapped up in. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. This right. shows it's just nonsense. Mm -hmm. So it, there is, I feel like no matter which way you turned, um, during this time period. And honestly, I even feel like now, like we've talked about this too, with diet culture in general, right? So some of the solutions are just as frustrating as the problem. Um, mm -hmm. so, but no matter where you turn, you have somebody being mean spirited and spouting misinformation and just being unhelpful. So it's well, just like, in what, in what other realm, right? In what other area? Can people be as mean and cruel as they are when it comes to weight? Right. Because there's just this, it's, it's an, I mean, I don't know if it's because it's a non-protected situation, but people feel they have the right to make a comment about someone else based on their size, where you would never just as a grown adult tell someone, oh, you're really ugly. 
Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen. But grown adults will make comments to other grown adults about their size. Right. (sighs) Right. And that's not why. Like, just don't say, like, you you don't have a right to comment on somebody's size. Of course not. Um, so yeah, so that's super fun. Um, but, <laughs> and then let's talk about the first, uh, beauty surgeries. So the first hmm. time you took, took place at eight in 1899 at Johns Hopkins, Hopkins, um, hospital, um, he removed 15 pounds of fat from a patient's quote unquote apron belly. So, um, again, a wonderful term from the time. Um, but these surgeries were rare because of infection. So they didn't really have that down. Um, treatments improved during world war one when doctors were, um, doing restorative surgeries on wounded veterans. So that, that surgical technology came along. Um, so, and then by 1930, um, tummy tucks, double chin, breast reduction, and other quote unquote beauty surgeries were available. Um, not super prevalent yet. So, um, but they were there. So if anybody's wondering, like when did surgeries happen? Um, that's about that time period. It's really um, interesting. Then, yeah. So the last time period that I really want to walk through, cause then I feel like we're getting enough into modern times that, mm-hmm. um, we're all kind of have some familiarity. Um, but during world war two, so the ideal, the standard of beauty changed during world war two. Right. And we have Rosie, the riveter to think for that. Mm. Right. So, um, the, the waist came back for women, right? And um, most of the clothing fashions were functional because women were leaving the work or leaving the house to go work. So um, we saw a rise of more functional clothing, but women's magazines were still featuring reducing diets to re- you know reduce size. Um, but this is where we also see the introduction of the grapefruit diet and the master cleanse, aka I've the done the master food. cleanse. Yeah. Well, I lasted about two days. Yeah. Two days. So for, for three days, right. You drink nothing but lemon juice and maple syrup with a dash of cayenne pepper six to 12 times per day. You know, it's so funny because it's just a very, I'm very different now. So it's laughable, but the fact Mm -hmm. that I even gave that a whirl, Mm -hmm. which I didn't, I didn't last three days is hilarious to me now. Right. Yeah. So, um, that's where your nutrition science is coming in is from, um, world war ii on that one so yeah good to know, good to know. That's, that's sort of the history of dieting through world war ii and again i would encourage people to go through this uh sky terra wellness um articles they're just very interesting so um maybe a little bit of light holiday reading <laughs> for everybody <laughs> um so then the next thing i want to talk about is bmi which is body mass index so I'm going to tell you a name, Heather, and I want you to tell me if you recognize it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ansel Keys. You know, I know, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, wait a minute. He's like a villain in the nutrition world and the paleo and keto world. Yeah. And he's behind BMI. Yeah. Modern so tell BMI us about it, Kelsey. Tell us about it. <laughs> oh, so let's get super scandalous. So Ansel Keys for people who don't know, um, 
he is behind the low fat recommendations that were made in the 1960s and 70s. So he did what was called the seven country study. And he found that countries that ate less dietary fat had better outcomes related to coronary disease and um, countries that had higher, higher dietary fat had worse. Um, However, it was found within probably the last decade, 15 years. And I want to say found like people were speaking out against him and he, I think wielded a pretty strong political sword Um, and he would just end careers, but he misinterpreted and misrepresented lots of data and gave false information. So um, the book, The Big Fat Surprise is an excellent book that walks through that. So I recommend that. So Ansel Keys is sort of this nutritional bad guy. Um, He did not invent BMI. So our modern calculation for BMI is um, weight divided by height in inches squared. The original BMI calculation is just height or sorry, weight over height. Um, and Ansel Keys squared it because I guess he thought it gave a more, uh, accurate calculation. Um, interestingly, um, Ansel Keys did not want BMI to be used as a measurement of obesity. Um, and he just, he just quote unquote, wanting to, wanted to use it for, um, large scale health studies. So it was okay. inaccurate. He knew that, but he's like, let's just use it for large scale health studies where we can have politicians write policy for the entire nation. Um, so anyway, um, that, so that's that, um, so Ansel Keys comes up with this, right? We already know that he's not the most scrupulous, scrupulous researcher. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about too. So the big problem with the Ansel Keys formula and the data collection he did to normalize and set guidelines used 7,400 men. There were no women in his study. So this measurement that is used to determine a woman's health, to determine really a woman's value is based off of men, which we really need to do an entire episode on how jacked up the fitness and nutrition industry is when it comes to including women in studies. Like women are not well represented in, represented in nutrition or fitness studies, period. So, um, it is not surprising to me that he did that given, given the time and space that he was in, but it is important to remember that whenever we use BMI as a measure of health and, um, goals. Well, because if you think about it, just really on a, the most basic level, female body fat does, is not the same as male body fat. If, no. if you, if you just think about it mm-hmm. and even out of necessity, mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Right. So um, it doesn't take into account, account muscle mass, right? Bone structure, water, heart rate, genetics, body type, or waist circumference, or waist to hip ratio, or anything else. Um, BMI uh, is not a reliable predictor of health. Um, it does not take into account physical activity, uh, eating enough food and sleep or getting enough sleep, having a fulfilling job, positive relationships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it is just a poor number. Um, and then in, in 1998 or the poor metric, um, overnight 
the BMI threshold was lowered from a normal weight being 20 under 27.8 to under 25 for, with no real scientific reasoning or justification. That's a big jump, huge jump. So 20, so this was an interesting statistic. 29 million people woke up the next day were grouped into this unhealthy category. Right. Because somebody somewhere decided Mm -hmm. based on an antiquated ratio that really doesn't mean anything. It was used for some sort of study that it means you're unhealthy. Right. Right. And that's it. And now everything across the board on every chart, on everything you would ever enter calls you unhealthy. Right. Right. Got it. And I even saw a reference to this study and I can't find the actual study. So I'm not, um, I don't love that, but it was referenced in, uh, it, it was an Atlantic article, but it was French. Right. So I didn't realize Atlantic had the Atlantic had, um, was in France, or I could be misquoting that, but it was Atlantico.fr. Um, and it, it referenced a study that found that 47% of people in this study were diagnosed as unhealthy because of their BMI, but it only turned out that actually 4% were in poor health. So wow. 37%, 4%, right? Wow. Because of this um, random weight calculation that for women, women were never even represented in this study. And I'm going to guess as well, these men were white, right? Uh, probably of European descent. So the um, sample size is specific to a very small number of people. That's just, I mean, I know so many things are like this, but it just absolutely blows my mind Mm -hmm. that this is still so, I'm using air quotes, important now. Like it's literally the basis upon which so many things are based upon. Mm -hmm. Great. It's wild. So, yeah. So BMI, um, again, like you, like it's not just used to determine our health, but like how many people have a goal for a healthy BMI. Right. And that may not be in the cards for some people because of their genetics, because of their distribution of fat, because of their gender, because like, um, because of the way their body retains water. And there's Um, just so many other things to look at that would be so much more mm -hmm. meaningful than Mm -hmm. this. Yeah. That's going to roll me into my last rant. And this one is less researched because to be quite honest, there is not a whole lot of research on it because I, okay. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to talk about it and then I'm going to kind of give my beef with it. So paleolithic people, right? Okay. So do you remember when we were going through our NTA training, one of the books that we had to read was nutritional and physical generation, uh, degeneration mm-hmm. by Weston A. Price, right? Great books. The idea of this is Weston A. Price traveled the globe, studied indigenous people and their diet, right? And he mm-hmm. was a dentist and he noticed teeth. that people, right, teeth, people, westernized societies were having massive dental issues. So he, but um, indigenous people who ate traditional diets did not have this, right? So he was trying to figure out why, what did they eat? What were the common um, factors? And I was looking at this book and I was looking, there's pictures of people in it. And I remember looking at the women. And I just, my knee jerk reaction was, well, they're not healthy. 
because they had bellies, right? These were, mm-hmm. these were women probably about my age, right? 45, 40, 45, somewhere in that range. Um, they had bellies, they had saggy boobs. They had, I, was gonna say, I remember them having breasts that would right. indicate maybe they've had children. Right. Or just, they've been around gravity their entire well, life. I mean, that's the other thing. Sure. <laughs> or they had like chicken wing, like they had, mm-hmm. they, had they had all of these body, um, body types, right. That we have been conditioned to believe are a unhealthy and b unattractive. And my knee jerk reaction was just like, Oh, like how can he find these people healthy? Like, look at how unhealthy they look. Right. Because I suppose in, in our minds, we're looking for him to find these societies that look like CrossFit games athletes. Right. Or the women on the cover of shape or a yoga instructor, right? There were no women like that. They, they were not in these communities, but based off of everything he found, they were incredibly healthy people and barring a, um, you know, and, and to be fair, right. These people don't always have food security. They don't always have, there's, um, lots of violence that can occur. Um, so I'm not like trying to paint this as like this, this utopian society, but, um, saving any traumatic death. These women lived a very long time in, in comfort and like, or in, well, uh, maybe not comfort, but in health, right. Like in vigor. And the way I'm thinking about it too, is if these are societies that have really haven't been touched by Western culture, mm-hmm. then they are probably not dealing with the whole body image issues that we are. Right. And right. perhaps this is letting just the body be where it actually is, has a set point. So maybe into words, what I wanted to say, right. So maybe instead of us going, oh, they don't look like our ideal. Mm -hmm. That's actually what a real living, moving human female looks like. Yes. Yes. That is exactly where I wanted to go. And it was all jumbled up in my brain because the more articles I read, like the more research articles, like I read one, um, and I was just like, like they were trying to figure, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to post this. I'm going to post this in the show notes, right? There's a PDF that I found. Um, and it gives, um, examples of uh, carvings of the female body from the paleolithic era. Mm-hmm. And many of the statues are obese by today's standards, right? Mm-hmm. But so then you ask yourself the question, right? So if, if paleo people were so healthy and their women were so healthy, how in the world could they be obese by our standards? And maybe the answer is that our standards are jacked up, is what right. the answer is. Right. Maybe obese doesn't obese is something we coined, right? We made up this, this title for this threshold. Maybe it's really not even a thing. And what we think of it doesn't mean unhealthy at all. Right. So somebody decided somewhere about what was healthy. So Mm -hmm. it's almost as if this is where, I mean, this sounds ridiculous. This is where the revolution needs to start to change what we have decided is healthy because it's, it's, if perception is reality and we all believe that this is how it's supposed to be, or this is what health is supposed to look like, we could believe anything. So this is where the word has to get out. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, right. So I read an article about these statues that was like, how could this, how could this obesity happen in the paleolithic era? And they were like, well, maybe the statues were like made up. Right. But then they did like, like measurements and they figured like, no, like these are like ratio wise, like an actual human being, right? Like, like somebody modeled these off of someone else and they're like, okay, well, what could cause this, this failure of insulin, insulin health in these women and whatever, whatever. And I'm like, Hey, maybe women's hormones change, right? Maybe gravity comes into play. Maybe these women had babies and didn't have a gym to go to, to lose the quote unquote baby fat. So maybe again, what we're looking at is what a typical human female body looks like, not what we're being fed. Yeah. There's just so much assumption around what we quote should unquote look like Mm -hmm. this whole should. And maybe that's really what we do look like. Mm-hmm. And, and isn't it. that powerful to recognize that these standards that we're being held to are not only hard to reach, but honestly unattainable for most people. And, and maybe it's not that these women were insulin resistant. Maybe it's just the way that the female form takes shape after so many years. Well, who's to say that that's not actually how it's supposed to be. Right. But we've just bastardized it and, right. and, 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 you know, tortured ourselves into being something else. Right. There's always going to be outliers, you know, the people who seem to eat everything they want and they're thin, you know, yeah. and those, maybe those are the flapper girls who just could wear those dresses. There's always, and, but see, that's also the piece that's missing. I think is that humans don't all look alike, mm-hmm. whether it's height hair color, eye color, skin color, body shape. Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely a set. It's setting us up for failure to have this ideal of anything because Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Okay. A few chosen people are going to have whatever it happens to be at the time, Mm -hmm. but you can't, you know, I can't look at a magazine with, I don't know, Cindy Crawford or now her daughter and and be like, okay, now I'm going to diet and exercise, exercise myself to that. That's impossible. Mm -hmm. So why can't we embrace the fact that people are not supposed to look the same are not supposed, there there is not one way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We just, we can't seem to do it. Nope. So I think, (laughs) um, with this last, um, like point here, right. About these, these paleolithic women and what they look like with the, with only, a quote unquote natural diet at their disposal, right? Like there were no paleolithic McDonald's they went to. They didn't have um, access to bags of chips or birthday cake or whatever. And and they didn't even have paleo snacks. Right. right. (laughs) The way we do now. (laughs) So uh, yeah, it's so it's an interesting, I think, point to maybe wrap up this conversation on. And this is something we can chip away at, right? Because it is, um, it's revolutionary and it is just powerful whenever you start to really break down what does all of this mean? 100%. And I'm hoping that people will come away with this thinking, wow, maybe I can go a little easier on myself because all of this is just construed by some person somewhere. 
-hmm. It's all been created. Mm -hmm. It's not a fact. It's not literal. BMI is not, it's everything. is just something that someone probably a white man, forgive me, has decided. And used other white men to create his benchmark. I mean, Kelsey, I did not know that only men were included in the BMI. I didn't either. I mean, BMI, look, to me, it's not a super important thing, but when I read that, it makes me feel like it's irrelevant to a woman. Like Mm -hmm. I want to see, okay, if we're going to have, if we're still going to use BMI, I want to see two standards, Mm -hmm. men and Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. Women always have higher body fat than men. Mm -hmm. I mean, nearly, you know, statistically, and that's the way it's supposed to be. So mm-hmm. why is that not taken into account? Well, and that's the thing. So women, when it's when you're considering BMI, right? BMI calculators include does gender. it does it I give you? So. Am I so am I incorrect? Adjusted, yes, it is just adjusted on the back end for okay. the gender. It okay. is not, a, but the data that's being still came from men. Still came from um, okay, okay. Men. Oh, wait I stand corrected. No, you're right. It does not. It's just one chart, is it not? Yeah. It's just yeah. height, um, feet, and inches and pounds, and then it computes BMI. So okay. yeah, you're right. For some reason, I was thinking that the, whenever I calculate, use a TDE calculator that asks for gender. It does. But but you know, and that's my point too. If this is what doctors are using, mm-hmm. as antiquated as it is, at least have there be a let there be a scale for both sexes that mm-hmm. takes something into account. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it just make you angry? Like it just like I've been it's just so irritating following the standard and killing myself to get there, and it's arbitrary. It doesn't mean anything. Some which is where and and obviously this has to happen at an individual level. We just have to say the hell with it. We're we're not doing that anymore. There are other ways to check on our health. Right. And, and our mental health. And there's so many in in our family health. And I mean, you know, let's, let's look at the holistic view and not just one number that says, oh, you're obese. Oh, Mm -hmm. you're about to die. (laughs) One foot in the grave. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been yeah. super interesting. And I have to say, thank you. You did such great research. I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I learned a lot too. So again, Sky Terra Wellness, go there because their, their article was fantastic. And then uh, we will be back with another episode about body, about uh, diet culture. So, and I'm going to ask our listeners too. So this is a big topic and there's lots of things. So if there is something you want to be discussed or if you have a question or comment, like let us know, because we would love to know what is going through everybody's mind. Absolutely. We would welcome it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Great. I think this was a great one. I hope everyone liked it and have an excellent week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. I know it's standard for every podcaster to say that, but a positive review and subscribing will help us become more visible on podcasting platforms. And be sure you follow Heather and I on social media. On Instagram, I'm at Kelsey Albers and Heather is at Heather underscore Hammond underscore. To learn more about working with Heather, visit her website, heatherhammondwellness.com. 
And to learn more about working with me, Kelsey, visit my website, ignitenourishthrive.com. We're so excited to chat again soon. Until next time.